Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to the debut installment of the AAMFT podcast where we look to innovate, educate, and relate one episode at a time. So who is this podcast for, you might ask? Well, it's for anyone wanting to know more about systemic therapy. Whether you're a seasoned veteran or you're a therapist in training, a student, or somebody that's working towards licensure, we aim to give you the latest and the greatest in MFT clinical skills, emerging trends, and visiting the pioneers of the field, those that thought leaders that have gone on to shape the way we think about systemic couple and family therapy. And when you start out a podcast, you have to debut in a big way. So we are bringing you probably uh, one of the foremost uh, thought leaders, uh, clinical artists and scientists in the field today, Dr. Sue Johnson. Dr. Sue Johnson is an author, researcher, popular presenter and leading innovator in the field of couple and family therapy and adult attachment. Sue is the primary developer of emotionally focused couples therapy, which we all know as EFT, and that's demonstrated its effectiveness in the last 30 plus years of clinical research. Sue Johnson is the founding director of the International Center for Excellence in Emotionally Focused Therapy. She's also a distinguished research professor at Alliant University in San Diego, as well as a professor emeritus in clinical psychology at the University of Ottawa. She has received a variety of awards acknowledging her development of EFT and her significant contribution to the field of couple therapy and adult attachment. In 2016, she was named a Psychologist of the Year by the American Psychological Association. And she's been honored several times by AMFT for her outstanding contributions to the field of couple and family therapy. As the author of the best-selling book for consumers, Hold Me Tight, Seven Conversations for a Lifetime of Love, Sue has kind of broken through to the general public and is led with a self-help version of her groundbreaking research about relationships, how to enhance them, how to repair them, and how to keep them. Her most recent book, Love Sense, the revolutionary new science of romantic relationships, outlines the new logical understanding of why and how we love. Based on new scientific evidence and cutting-edge research, she explains that romantic love is based on an attachment bond. Here in the AMFT interview, though, we go beyond. We are a podcast for therapists by therapists. I am not an expert interviewer. I am a, a passionate practitioner, uh, just like you out there in the audience. So kind of do my interviews like I do therapy. So in our interview with Sue, you won't be hearing about the 
three stages or nine steps of EFT. You'll be hearing about the person behind the model. And this is an interview so big that we decided to not only make it our first installment of the podcast, but break it down into two sections. So over the next two episodes, you'll hear Sue talk about her background. And really, when we think about attachment and our primary attachment figures, somebody that is interested in studying that needs to know what was Sue's attachment figures like. So we spend a lot of time talking about Sue Johnson and her relationship with her mother and father and how that led to a career and what she thinks about her current relationships and the evolution of her work. Sit back and enjoy, and I'll be able to tell you about what's coming up on the podcast at the end. Thanks for listening. One of the questions we always ask people to start out, how did you decide to become a couple and family therapist? (laughs) Well, I think that's an interesting question because I don't think I decided to become a couple and family therapist. Um, I'd done a lot of things. Before I even started seeing couples, um, I'd seen families uh, in the treatment center I was working in, and that was fascinating. Um, And I'd done a lot of individual therapy and a lot of groups with various different kinds of people. But what happened was um, that at a certain point in my training, I was... um, in a clinic and they said, what we want you to do is see couples on the hour, every hour for as long as you can manage it, maybe about three days. And uh, (laughs) I was so silly that I wasn't even so naive that I wasn't even daunted by that. I said, sure. And then I started seeing couples and I was completely, totally hooked. I was fascinated appalled, um, totally caught by the dramas they were in, totally caught by the vulnerability that I saw in both people, which they did not see in each other, um, totally fascinated by, you know, how suddenly I knew that what I was watching was universal, was incredibly important in people's lives. I knew that it was what I saw my parents struggle with when I was young and it defeated them both and it had a terrible, terrible impact on my father's life, um, who was really my main attachment figure in my life. And um, I was just caught by it and I thought, okay, I, I was also appalled by my incompetence. I didn't know what to do. So you know, um, I, I dashed out to the library and I, I read Neil Jacobson talking about teaching people communication skills. I read the analytic people talking about collusion and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, I was a Rogerian already, so I kind of knew how to listen to people. And after a, a few weeks, I just threw all those folks um, out of the window and said, okay, I don't know how to help these folks and I don't think anyone else does either. So maybe I should just start by letting my clients teach me. I'll just start taping my sessions. And I got, I got, I got hooked and here I am all these years later, I'm still hooked. I still feel excited when I 
hear a couple coming down the hall that I haven't seen before. I'm still um, eager to find out what they're going to show me, what they're going to teach me. Um, I'm still hooked. So that's really what happened. You clearly your, your your passion comes through anybody that's seen you speak or, or work with couples that you're just as excited about the work now as you were back then. Take us, give us some uh, for kind of historical purposes the timeline. Where, where are we talking about? Where where were you? I was in Vancouver. Okay. On the west coast of Canada, where which is where I am now. I've just moved back. I've moved back um, from the east coast. Now I'm on Vancouver Island in a lovely little town called Victoria. Um, but I was in Vancouver. I'd come from England a few years before. I was doing a doctorate in counseling psychology um, at the University of, 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 of Vancouver U, right? Um, and um, I was struggling with, you know, how to get through the program, how to figure out a thesis, what really, what did I really want to do in psychology? I was struggling with that. So this was a clinic. I can't even remember the name of it now. This was a small clinic downtown. And theoretically, I was only supposed to have to see three, three couples to complete my clinical training. <laughs> um, that didn't work. Um, the clinic was having a hard time. There were a lot of people sick. And they said to me, well, you're quite experienced. Oh, um, if you don't mind, we'd like three days from you. And we want you to see all these all these couples that we can't handle. So that's where I was. And um, I was up in, I think the other thing about it was I was really looking for something that really grabbed me I was you know, I'd already got a thesis mapped out for me and I was bored by it already and I think I was what was that on Sue what was that original thesis on before you started oh, taping yourself with these couples it was something about um, process of change in individual therapy and it was you know um, my advisor was Les Greenberg and he was He's into, he's basically an individual therapist. He's a Rogerian. And, you know, he sort of said, well, this is what I think you should do. And kind of nothing happened, you know, for me. It was like, okay, you know, is that what I'm going to do? Then I started seeing these couples and working with them and um, writing down, writing out the transcripts of the sessions, if you can believe it, taping them, writing them out, um, looking at what worked and what didn't. And it wasn't terribly long before I felt like emotion, just focusing on the emotion and the drama and understanding the drama, looking at the patterns in the drama, something was starting to yell. And I was doing things and I suddenly felt like, oh my God, look, I'm making a difference. So we started writing it down and I thought, what I want to do for my thesis is, is test if this stuff works, which in hindsight, was completely insane, okay? I was a, a doctoral student. You know, I was um, working part-time in order to eat. You know, I it was insane for me to try and write a manual of what I was doing and then to try and do um, a real rigorous study. 
Right, so that would actually go on to become your dissertation and the the first outcome study on EFT. What year was that, Sue? Um, I finished my doctorate in 86, right? And and, um, it was insane. I mean, when I look back on it now, I've done a lot of research studies since then. That doctoral dissertation was putting together what we had put together, what we had come up with with couples from a little manual that was about eight pages, taking some therapists who would agree to work with me, you know, um, looking at our tapes, trying to figure out what we're doing. And I persuaded Neil Jacobson to do another group with the clinical psychology students who already knew how to do behavioral stuff. Um, He sent a trainer up and we got these couples in and we randomly assigned them half to a waiting list, a third to a waiting list, a third to EFT, and a third to Neil Jacobson's BMP, and we tested it. And it was crazy, and it nearly killed me. In fact, at one point, my doctor said, um, you've lost a lot of weight, and you're getting sick, and if you, if you keep losing weight, I don't care what you're doing in your career, I'm going to put you in the hospital. So that's how exhausting it was I did the whole study in seven months I was on fire I was um, enthralled by the fact that we seemed to have found something we were making a difference for these couples they were having these knock your socks off conversations which we call softenings or hold me tight conversations mm-hmm. now they were having these conversations that were just moving and seemed to not just change the relationship but change how they saw themselves it it was i thought this is something i don't know what i've plugged into here but this is powerful well you know the field uh field of couple therapy has followed a parallel path as traditional family therapy where your traditional family therapist they did not they wanted to study behavior in fact Originally, uh, the MRI group, what what happened in the black box, i.e. emotion, cognition, they thought that would inhibit change. And and if you were getting trained in couples therapy, you were getting trained in behavioral marital therapy. Now what we know is traditional couples uh, behavioral therapy. Uh, And you really, you knew something was else was there. So by watching uh, these couples and uh, inducing, inducting the model from what you saw, you tapped into this emotional experience. Now, were emotions, was that always how you geared, uh, were geared to look at people and relationships, or did yes. it really hit hit you after watching those tapes? No, I think I was already there. Um, you know, the thing about me was I had a very strange childhood. Oh, well, I want to hear I- all about that. And when you think <laughs> of Sue Johnson, people want to know, was Sue Johnson a securely attached young girl or was she not (laughs) oh well um i'm not sure but i grew up in an english pub yes i've heard you allude to that but i I don't and your mom your mom was a uh was a barmaid correct or did she she run the bar she was a barmaid and she was in charge of the pub she was the the big cheese she was the one that all the guys were afraid of um not my big my dad who was you a great big guy but he was very quiet and calm my mother was like a firecracker if you upset her you never knew what was going to happen but the point was i was given a task i was stood on a stool and taught how to wash glasses nobody sort of thought 
oh, Sue's a child, she shouldn't be in a pub. That wasn't the way it worked in that culture in those days. Um, you know, English pubs in those days were like kind of more like community centers in some ways. Everybody went there every day to talk and be together, right? Are those so, your earliest memories, like growing up doing it? Yeah, like I'm standing on a stool and I'm dunking the glasses in the water and dunking them in the, the rinse water and wiping them and putting them on, the, on a shelf. And as I'm doing this, I'm watching adults flirt, fight, um, have huge discussions, get drunk. Um, and, um, you know, there were some traumatized folks there because it was a naval pub. It was a, everyone was in the Navy, so... You know, it was it was it was a it was years after the war, but there was still a whole bunch of um, upset folks in there. How did growing up in that bar impact your way you viewed your parents and relationships? I think, first of all, it um, it made it so that emotion was never intimidating for me, and it I was used to it, and also I think. Even back then, I watched so many real-life dramas that I already started to pick up that there were patterns in these dramas. You know, I would watch people come in and say the exact same thing to my father every night and him say the exact same thing back. So it wasn't rocket science that this wasn't about the content of the conversation. This was about something else. This was about, I don't think I could have said it's about connection, but I was already um, totally comfortable with intense interpersonal dramas and emotion growing up as a child. And um, then I was sent to um, uh, talk about two different worlds, talk about understanding that realities, there's more than one reality. I was sent to school with very conservative Roman Catholic nuns <laughs> who... Um, added to that repertoire, taught me to think. They taught me to argue and reason and question and think about everything. So I had this sort of parallel thing of one group of people teaching me how to question and think and think for myself uh, in a very sophisticated way. I didn't realize until I'd grown up how sophisticated those nuns were. And then on the other hand, I was immersed in these ongoing emotional dramas. So I think that was part of what resonated for me when I started to see couples. There was part of it that I didn't understand, but there was part of it that was like, oh, oh, this is, you know, I remember this. This is, this is, this is, I always knew that the emotion was the music and that there was a dance going on between these people that wasn't being captured by any of the behavioral stuff or the analytic stuff. I always knew that. And I always knew that the emotion is what drove the dance between people because I watched it in the pub. Yeah, you watched it in the pub and then you saw it unfold in, in the therapy room. Now, uh, you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you, you learned a lot from observing your parents. What did, you know, I always say... We only know two relationships, that and the one that we're in and our blueprint, which usually comes from our family of origin. So as much as you're comfortable, uh, I guess, describe what you learned about your parents' relationship and uh, the type of uh, 
relationship you went on to have as a young adult with your mother and father. And I'm also curious what they what they think of what you have done with your career. <laughs> well, um, I think it was very clear to me. Two things were very clear to me. And I think I said this in my book, Love Sense, actually. Two confusing things were very clear to me. It was clear to me that my parents mattered to each other a lot, a lot, a lot. And they loved each other. And it was clear to me that they were destroying each other. And I remember sitting on the stairs as a child. And I think my granny came to sit beside me because she lived with us all the time I was growing up. She was wonderful. And she came to sit beside me because I was sitting on the there's crying, listening to my parents fight. And when you look back on it now, they had a completely classic, criticized, demand, enraged, followed by shut down, dismiss, withdraw, dance in their relationship. My dad would simply stop talking and my mother would, would just spiral into more and more hysterical rage. Mom was the pursuer and dad was the distancer. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And don't forget that dad joined the Navy at some ridiculous age, lied about his age, joined the Navy at 15, and, you know, um, and had spent almost his whole life before he took over this pub fighting in various wars and being on ships with men. So I don't think anyone ever helped him understand anything really about women. <laughs> Sue, Sue, did you have siblings or were you the only child? I was the only one. So did you get tri triangulated into their dance? No, I don't think I did. And I don't quite know why. Perhaps it was because I always had my granny to be with, who was amazingly safe and very calm. Um, I, I think I got a bit triangulated when I was an adolescent. But um, not as a child. My mother was amazingly busy. She was running this pub. And, um, you know, she could be warm and wonderful. And she could also be dangerous as hell. And so I think that helped me tune into tr the traumatized folks I see where, you know, People, can, people you love can be the source of fear and the solution to fear. And sometimes that, that is a real paradox for you. My mum was like that. But I was amazingly close to my father all my life. And what is miraculous to me is that you're nobody. I don't think he ever read a book on attachment. I know he didn't. I'm not sure about the relationship he had with my grandparents. I've never been clear about them. But somehow, this man was, knew how to be the most amazing father. I mean, he was, if John Bowlby, the, the father of attachment theory, had watched my dad interact with me, I think he would have been blown away. And you only realize it, you know, when you've grown up, that he was an amazing father. He was safe haven, secure base. It, isn't it amazing that how often when I watch um, when I work with couples that they they cannot do it with each other they cannot show this vulnerability or yes. create these connections but they can do it with their kids That's and your right. dad your dad was the same way he might have not have been able to do it with your mother but he had a way to securely uh, connect to you and throughout your your whole life now was, was mom 
sometimes parents that don't have that connection with their kids, they even if they can't articulate it in words, they're they're jealous or they feel like they're missing out. Do you think mom uh, was envious of that connection that you had with your your father and also your grandmother? Maybe, but I think the key thing about my mom and me was that. Um, you know, and this is hindsight after, you know, decades, but we really lived on different planets. My mom was born in a little village. She was working class. She considered life to be a fight, a fight for survival where you had to work every minute and you had to claw your way up, maybe into the middle class, but at least into survival. And I didn't realize until after she died, which is ridiculous when you think about it, that she was almost illiterate. Mm. And so by a load of accidents, which we won't get into, okay, but by a a series of accidents, because my family were quite poor, I ended up being sent to this, this Catholic private school where I was educated by these sophisticated, educated women. So I was... Um, lapping up novels, I was, I was, I was being taught uh, what I think about now as philosophy. They called it Christian doctrine, but really it was philosophy. I was being taught. I was sort of in this other world. And then when I think when I came back to the pub, it was like my mum didn't know how to deal with that. We would have arguments. By the time I was about ten. We were having arguments where my mum would say, what are you doing, Susan? What are you doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or nose out of that book, right? Where do you think that book learning is going to get you? That's not going to get you anywhere, you see? And I would resent this, of course, you know, and I'd do what I was told and then, and then go away and read somewhere else. Whereas my father loved it that I was getting an education. He, I have a picture of him when I got my degree. I was, um, I went, I was early all through the school system. You know, I got my degree by the time I was 20, which is pretty early. And I have a picture of him when I got my degree with my hat and gown on. And I mean, he is a picture of complete pride and, you know, he adored that I was reading great books and, and that I could argue and that I could even argue with people in the pub, you know. And um, my mother was taught, you know, she said, um, you've got to, you know, you've got to work harder. You've got to, you should learn how to be a hairdresser. <laughs> so was- it's, it's, it's interesting because your mother, that part of her that, uh, made her tough and resilient and probably was her survival mechanism kind of working in the pub. It, it's kind of counter to, to showing vulnerability uh, that we think of, uh, certainly when we think of EFT. So in, right. in some ways, uh, she was proud of you but couldn't relate to you since she had a really different experience. But your father uh, could could understand and was really thrilled you were getting this experience. As for someone that went through 12 years of Catholic schooling, I can certainly relate to your story and how that shaped you and your your work ethic. I am curious as you progressed and became, uh, you know, a both a, 
a stellar researcher and clinician. Did your mother, um, and I don't know when she passed away, did your mother get it? Did she understand your no. your impact on, on the field? No, no, I don't think she did. I think it was, it was completely mysterious to her. Um, I think, uh, you know, it was just too far from where she lived. And I think... Um, in some ways, I, I think she sort of resented. It was almost like I'd left her world. I'd chosen another world, a world she didn't understand. Um, you know, a, being a professor, I heard her talk over the, um, the fence to a neighbor once. I can't remember how old I was when I was an adult. And she was explaining to this neighbor that I was a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thought I should correct her. I thought, no, it's all right. It doesn't matter. You know, it's like, um, and, you know, she was telling this neighbor that I was very important and I earned a lot of money. And I thought, oh, okay, she doesn't, because that's what mattered to her, you see. She would yeah. always tell me, you must earn money. And I think it influenced me my whole life because... I have some sort of um, defiant part of me. I was, by the time I was an adolescent, I was quite a defiant little kid, okay? Um, and one of my defiant things in my family was my mother would say, the only thing that matters in life is money. And I would say, I refuse. I will not live my life out of that. I'm not going to care about money. I'm going to do what I want to do in life. I'm not going to care about money. And it sounds kind of abstract, but then her and I would get into one hell of a fight. <laughs> right? And she'd say, you know, you're stupid and you don't understand life and da-da-da. And, and, you know, we'd fight. By the time I was an adolescent, um, my parents had split up. I stayed with my dad and my granny. And when my mom and I would get together... There was Bart. She was a very dominant lady, and I think I got a lot of my, um, what people have called my irreverence, my, I don't know what you call it. Well, you're um, reading my mind. I was going to ask you how that barmaid part of you comes out and manifests itself both in your, uh, your, your personal, but also in your, your, your clinical work, and maybe it does come out as that irreverent, uh kind of in the moment type of way but also you are i mean you are you are tough and you've also been successful so in some ways uh most model developers part of their one of their common factors is their belief in what they're doing and their ability to get other people excited about the work uh and your mother would certainly uh even if she is not a foreign to the world of couple or family therapy she would certainly have to acknowledge your your success was she around enough to see that no not really um i think my father was proud of me i think um you know for him the idea that i was doing a doctorate and that i had um I can't exactly remember exactly what i was doing when he died um but you know i think he was very proud of me and i think he would be proud of me now, right? Whereas I think if my mom was alive now, she'd still be puzzled. <laughs> no. One of the last times she was here, she told me that 
um, even though I was happy doing what I was doing, in fact, it was a tragedy that I hadn't stayed in my little hometown in England to become a hairdresser. <laughs> right. In this and future episodes, we're going to be talking to a variety of people who have shaped and impacted our profession, board members, leaders on the state and network level, people like Sue, whose work in developing EFT has made a significant contribution to the field. One common thread between Sue and the rest of our guests is leadership, those who are passionate about advancing the profession and their impact on it. If you have the desire to nurture your own leadership potential and specialize your career, then AMFT has an excellent opportunity for you with their yearly event, the Leadership Symposium. It is designed for MFTs all across the career spectrum to grow and develop into therapists who will not only enrich their career, but the profession as well. The event this year is in Arlington, Virginia from March 7th through 9th and features interactive workshops, speakers that are experts in and out of the field, and ample networking opportunities with other MFTs who also want to invest in themselves and the field. If you're eager for more information, please go to aamft.org slash leadership. That's aamft.org slash leadership for more information. And I hope someday to interview you on this podcast to discuss your contributions to the field. So when you uh, flash forward, when you see someone like your mom, whether it's a male or female in, a, in, in your office or in a couples therapy session, when you have a, an interface issues of, of a client that reminds you of that kind of rigid, tough exterior that your mom had, how, how do you deal with that in a therapy room? Um, I just see how afraid they are. And I think that's the secret to working with aggressive people, period. You know, I've worked with a lot of vets. Um, I've worked with um, violent men in groups. I've worked with a lot of very escalated couples. Um, uh, and I guess the thing with aggression, I think it's particularly important to have this perspective when um, people get aggressive with you as a therapist. The place I always go... Um, and I guess I must have seen this with my mother at some, uh, you know, it must have happened with my mother. I always, we're all caught when somebody gets hostile with us. There's a moment of, <gasps> because we're human and we don't, uh, being criticized or being attacked hurts. We're human beings. But then for me, that moment after you're caught is like, I always, I, I'm telling you a thought, but it's more like a visceral reaction before the aggression there's a threat and so i always go to what is the fear and um you know it's kind of interesting because i think my mother is still maybe the person in my life who i could still say i don't really understand even though i think about her or i reflect on her she was a very complex person she was a little fighter and there's she was working class uneducated woman and she was a little fighter and there was part of that I respect and she gave me that too I'm a little fighter in the end like somebody once said um what was it 
one of my students said to me, oh, I met somebody the other day and told them I work with you. And they said, oh, Sue Johnson must be this cuddly, warm, um, kind of grandmothery figure. And I said, oh, what did you say to them? And my student roared with laughter. And she said, no, Sue Johnson isn't like that at all. Sue Johnson's out there and, you know, pretty powerful and um, says what she thinks and can stand up to people and she can be kind of aggressive. And that's right. I have my mother's fighter in me. Is Sue Johnson, the fighter. She has many parts of her personality, as you can tell, comes through in that interview. I don't think you'll find any other interview where she goes into depth talking about her mother and kind of her ambivalent feelings toward that. In the next installment, in part two, you'll hear Sue talk about her current relationships, including her husband, uh, what it's like to be divorced, remarried, and how she continues to move forward in her career, how she wants to be remembered, and what she has yet left to accomplish. So here at the AMFT podcast, we are going to bring you a combination of really in-depth person behind the model interviews like that in the upcoming weeks with, you know, such luminaries as Bill Doherty, Dick Schwartz, Harry Aponte, Fred Piercy, Chloe Madonis, just to name a few that have already graciously accepted the invitation for the AMFT interview. We'll also be talking about emerging trends like online therapy, building cultural competency, attachment-based therapies, medical family therapy, just to name a few. And if you're a young professional listening to the podcast, we also have a lot for you, including preparing for licensure exams, how to navigate supervision, getting a job. Again, here on the AMFT podcast, we are looking to relate innovate and educate one episode at a time please your feedback is welcomed you can get a hold of us at communications at amft.org for email and if you want to follow us on twitter and please if you enjoyed listening to this promote the show tweet us tell your friends and the twitter handle is at the amft very simple until next time stay systemic my friends